The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. So we are still in the book of Luke, and I say still because I don't know why I say still, because we're going to be here for a while, but um, we're only in the first chapter. We're not even out of the first chapter yet. We are, we are coming to a passage that is, as Sam has already mentioned, very rich in Old Testament theme, themes, bringing many important aspects of Old Testament revelation together. And I want us just to get the, uh, get our contextual bearings again, get reestablished in the context from last week, just briefly, to, to get back to where we are at. So let's look at verses 57 through 66, just briefly. What, what has happened? Well, it, it was time for Elizabeth to, to give birth, and she did, and they, they took this new child that they had been promised uh, at least nine months, if not more, uh, previously, and they, they take the child, as was the custom, to get circumcised. And at the time, it was time to name the child. And they're, they're asking, okay, what are you going to name the child? Expecting, maybe Zechariah Jr., something like that, something in the, the, uh, their lineage, some, someone along that, one of their ancestors, someone. But Elizabeth responds, no, his name will be John. And that was interesting. So they go to Zechariah to get the confirmation, and Zechariah, remember, unable to speak, he confirms it by writing something down on a tablet, and it says his name is John, so he affirms it, and there we see this man who previously had a lapse of faith when Gabriel came to visit him the first time, now is steadfast in his faith and said, no, his name will be John, and at that very moment, God removes this months-long discipline and he's now able to speak freely. And Luke reports that his tongue was loosed and he spoke blessing God and fear came upon all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about in, throughout the hill country of Judea. And today we are going to look at specifically what Zechariah's loose tongue said. Because it's then reported in verses 67 and following. And he is going to give us a prophecy so rich in Old Testament theme and fulfillment that we can't possibly cover all of it in a 45-minute message or a three-hour message, quite frankly. So we're going to be here for five hours. No, I'm just kidding. Um, But it is, I want us to see how incredibly rich it is, knowing that we can only scratch the surface, but I hope it will be encouraging to you. So let's look at the text. We've already had it read to us. The first thing we need to notice in this text is that this is a prophecy. Zechariah is prophesying something. We're told that in verse 67. And that's important to keep in mind because this is God giving direct revelation through Zechariah about Israel's redemptive historical situation and the things to come. This is direct revelation given through Zechariah about what has happened and why that's significant for the present moment in Israel. And it was a significant present moment. His father, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, direct revelation from God, not merely Zechariah's opinion. Yes, he is reflecting upon what's just happened in Israel. Yes, he knows the Old Testament. And as we'll see, he knows the the Old Testament incredibly well. But not, this is not merely human reflection on biblical truth. This is not merely human observation. God, in a mysterious way, working through all that to give direct revelation to Zechariah so that we today in Israel back then would know what actually is transpiring. A remarkable event in the history of redemption. 
Everything is coming to a climax. Everything is now fixing on this person that, the, that Zechariah is about to talk about. In fact, what's interesting, I find interesting, is that we had just came out of the episode of Zechariah and Elizabeth having their son circumcised and named. Okay, so they're naming it. And you would expect that the prophecy would immediately have something to do with whom? John. It's not. He doesn't start talking about his own son until verse 76. You know what son he's talking about? You don't know whose son he's talking about in these first few verses? <laughs> Mary's. So he's talking about the Messiah here. But he, he first begins in verse 68. He says, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. So this language of blessing the Lord, if you, you were to study that word throughout the Old Testament, you see that this is given often in situations where the speaker is blessing and praising and thanking God for a significant thing that God had done, very significant in the history of redemption. So for example, David in 1 Kings 1.48, he says he blessed God when he recognized that Solomon, his son, was now anointed king. He would have a son who would take over and be able to rule in the wisdom and under the law of the Lord. So he blessed and thanked God for the work that he had done in establishing his own son on the throne. He blessed God. He thanked him. He praised him. That's what the word means. And then in 1 Chronicles uh, 29.10, David again blessed God for when he was able to witness all of Israel give generously to the building of the temple. That would, be, that would be built not by him, but by his son. And so this language of blessing God is happening throughout the Old Testament when, when the people of Israel are recognizing God's great work, what he has done, what he's about to do, or what he's going to do in the future for the benefit of his people. It's just an overwhelming thanks to God when you recognize what God is up to and what that means for you as a nation and you as a church in our case. So he blesses the Lord. But what's important about that recognition of blessing the Lord is that he sees that God is the source of what he'll point out Israel's salvation. God is the one who is doing this work. We saw this a couple of weeks ago. I pointed out with the situation with Elizabeth and Zechariah, you might remember, that they were, Elizabeth and Zechariah backed into a corner so to speak, and so was Israel in an impossible situation. How would they ever get out? And God comes and delivers so that it will be clear that he is the one who opens the womb, and he is the one who brings about the salvation of his people. Similar situation here. Zechariah is expressing his thanks to, the God, thanks to God, and that demonstrates clearly that God is the source of Israel's salvation, her redemption, all of her needs are wrapped up in and cared for and provided for by this one true God of Israel. And so Zechariah is excited, he is enthralled, he is satisfied in this great God, and he blesses him. Why? And he tells us why. Look at verse 68. He tells us why. For he, that's God, has visited us and redeemed his people. Now what's interesting about that We'll see in a little bit, he's, he is referring to the Messiah, this coming of Mary's child. And he speaks about it in a, such a way as though it's already been accomplished. He has visited and redeemed his people. The very presence 
of Mary's child, the very presence of this Messiah, was enough to say that God has accomplished his redemption for Israel. Now, he'll speak of future realities. But here is God bringing about things to pass promised long ago in such a profound and unique and climactic way that Zechariah can say he has visited us and he has redeemed his people. He sees wrapped up in this son of Mary the very redemption and salvation and deliverance of Israel. Remarkable passage, remarkable sentence, and the remarkable use of language. Again, this is not just Zechariah saying a few things that he thinks are clever. This is inspired by God giving prophecy through Zechariah of what is occurring. Verse 69, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Zechariah is rejoicing over God bringing about the salvation and deliverance of Israel, something that they had longed for and looked for for centuries. He's raised up a horn of salvation. He is made a way for us through his mighty acts, his mighty deeds. That's the, the, the imagery here of this horn of salvation. This is reference to, to might and power that a, uh, a warrior might have in battle. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us. He is delivering us from our enemies. Now, this is, we've, seen, we've already seen the source of Israel's salvation. Next, we've seen the promise of Israel's salvation. If you want to follow, I just gave you a really basic outline on the, um, in the app or on your bulletins. Source of Israel's salvation, clearly the God of Israel, making it clear that he will unilaterally be the one who rescues Israel. And he'll even put us in situations, he'll put Israel in situations so that they'll recognize, oh no, it's not our doing, it's not our hands, it's the Lord. And where is he going to do this? Where's the location, you might say? It says in the latter part of verse 69, in the house of his servant David. Again, this is flush with Old Testament significance. Israel was looking for David. They were looking for a son of David. God was raising up. He had promised David in 2 Samuel 7. He had promised David, listen, David, I'm going to raise up a son who's going to rule in your place. In fact, your throne will be established forever. I'm going to do that work for you. Ultimately, you don't even serve God. He serves you, and he is the one who provides your deliverance. And it's going to come through a son of David. And so Israel is looking for this son of David. And it's likely here that Zechariah knows Mary's situation. I mean, it's hard not to think that Elizabeth would have communicated these things to Mary, and Mary would have, or uh, Mary would have communicated these things to Elizabeth, and Elizabeth would have communicated them to Zechariah. And Zechariah can't talk, so she can just talk all day long and tell him all the things that she wants, and he has no recourse. And so how likely is it that she is telling him things that Mary had reported? And so here is a situation where Zechariah, not only knowing the Old Testament, but also recognizing that this Mary had, had given or is, is going to, uh, there's going to be a child who's come from Mary who will come from the line of David. In her will be the fulfillment, in this child will be the fulfillment of Israel's expectations of this ruler to come out of David. So this is 
in the house of David. This is where this will, this is where this child will come from. And this is fulfilling the expectation that Israel would be having at the time. Verse 70. So this is in the house of David, but it's also spoken of through the prophets long ago. An important thing to, to recognize is that God tells David he is going to have a son who's going to rule for him, and his kingdom will be established forever, and his throne will be established forever. Remarkable uh, promise. But the Old Testament prophets pick up on this promise. It's not just left hanging in midair in 2 Samuel. The prophets pick up on this promise so that what you have is an Old Testament resonating with the expectation of a David, a David's son, so much so that they're actually calling this person who's coming David. This kind of language, like in Jeremiah 23, 5, for example. This expectation, the prophets are, are picking up on what God had said in 2 Samuel 7. They're understanding the scripture. They're putting it together. And now they are speaking of this coming David. Israel is looking for a son of David. Zechariah is saying this is all coming to fulfillment in this child, in this Messiah. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. This is Old Testament expectation. Just a small thing. This is a little bonus I want you to see here. Verse 7, he says, he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets. The mouth of the holy prophets. Do you see that? The mouth of the prophets. Why is that significant? Singular, plural, singular, plural. I think that's meant to tell us that there is a unity to the prophetic message of the Old Testament. To the point, you can say, they all spoke with one mouth. You have multiple prophets, you have one mouth. Why? Because you have one God inspiring and guiding those prophets to speak and to prepare the people with prophecy of a coming David, a coming son of David. You can already see in just a few verses, we are deep into the Old Testament and Old Testament expectations. That we should be saved from our enemies. So, what do we see here? We see the promise of Israel's salvation in the house of David, spoken of through the prophets long ago. And what is this going to provide? That we sh what, what are the prophets talking about? That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. A significant part of the Old Testament, once you really start to, to, to grasp it, is that Israel is looking for a complete redemption. A, a full and complete and final redemption from all her troubles. An, an expectation that there would be final deliverance into a, a realm where Israel would be at peace. There would no longer be any more conflict, no, no longer more, any more enemies trying to <coughs> exile them, take them over, infiltrate their land. This is an expectation that God will come and restore his people into a place of final rest and salvation. And that would be specifically that they'd be saved from their enemies. God would save his people from their enemies in a final way. And this is what Israel is looking for, isn't it? But when you come to this passage, or when you come to the passage that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, where is Israel right now? Well, they're presently occupied by Rome. And previous to that, they had been exiled. 
Previous to that, they'd had all kinds of trouble with various nations as they, as Israel would sin against the Lord and the Lord would discipline them. And they had been brought into exile. They had been brought back. They had been established in their land, but uh, not, not really as glorious as it previously was. I mean, there was even weeping when they came back and they started rebuilding things. There's weeping because people recognize this is not as glorious and as wonderful as it used to be. And now, God hasn't spoken them through a prophet for several centuries, and now here they are in, uh, in their land, but occupied by a foreign nation, a foreign ruler. And now, Zechariah is saying, wait a second, God is doing something in this child, in this Messiah, that indicates that he is now moving to rescue Israel from her enemies from the hand of all who hate them. That's what this is, that's what's wrapped up here. Israel is expecting, and rightly so, a political deliverance. They're expecting a political deliverance from their political enemies, their physical enemies, a rest from their enemies. That's what Israel is expecting, and rightly so, because that is promised in the Old Testament. But what else does this promise contain? What else does Zechariah see in the Old Testament that's happening now in this child of Mary? To show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. So God had promised the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He had promised them that he was going to do something remarkable and establish them. In fact, he even says, and that's the next sentence, to remember his covenant with Abraham probably referring to Genesis 22, 16 through 17, after uh, Abraham had come down from Mount Moriah, and, he, and God had send this, said this to him. He said, this is after Abraham had went up and he had attempted to sacrifice his son out of obedience to the Lord. And the Lord says this to, in response. He says, quote, this is Genesis 22, 16 through 17. He says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you. And I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and of the sand which are on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. This is the promise that is reaffirmed throughout the Old Testament. That God would provide a full restoration to their land culminating in the promises of a new heaven and a new earth in which no unrighteousness would dwell, and God would reign over his enemies and over Israel's enemies. The promise of Abraham, specifically, was then developed throughout the Old Testament as a promise to gather God's people into a place where they could, in security and peace, without fear, worship him in freedom and joy forever. And Zechariah is saying, that's all coming about with this coming child. So it was a political, you could say, salvation. It was a political deliverance, so to speak. They are going to get rest from their enemies, but it's not only that. For the, for the Jews who recognized what God was doing in Israel, for those who really knew Yahweh, and it wasn't everybody. See, Israel was a mixed community, you might say, a mixed covenant community. You belong to the covenant if you were an Israelite, but it didn't mean you knew the Lord. That's why the new covenant is so remarkable. Everybody in the new covenant knows the Lord, not in Israel. 
not under the old covenant. You could be in the old covenant and not know the Lord. But those who did know, know the Lord desired this deliverance, not merely for its own sake. Why did they desire it? Look at what Zechariah says. The oath that he swore to his father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, that's the means, and that is, that is something that is definitely occurring. However, that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. See, the godly in Israel desired deliverance, but it was deliverance so that they could what? Worship in freedom, in joy, without fear. Is that why you want to go to heaven? Is that why you want to be in the new heavens and the new earth? Is that why you want to be in the kingdom, safe from all of your enemies, so that you can worship? That's the, that's the hope of the the godly Jew, it's the hope of the believer. That's what Zach, Zechariah is keying in on here. He's ex, this is an ex, expectation, but it's not merely a physical or political deliverance for its own sake. We'll see that why that's significant in a, in a moment. Zechariah's prophecy encompasses both a final salvation from Israel's political enemies and something else. We'll see what that why that's so important in a moment. Let's turn now to the third point on your outline, the forerunner of Israel's salvation. Now we're getting to this discussion in Zechariah's prophecy about his own son. He loves his son. He's thankful for his son, but even his love for his son is superseded by his love for God and his carrying out his promises in the Messiah, not even ultimately in his son, John. John would be a forerunner. And what is this forerunner going to do? He says, and you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High. Now, that's a remarkable statement because for several centuries, there had not been prophecy in the land of Israel. We're in the years of silence, as it were. And to say that this son is going to be a prophet of the Most High is making quite the claim. He's going to come and do something significant, and he's not going to leave that hanging. He's going to tell you what that will be. Next phrase, he says, for you will go before the Lord and prepare his ways. You'll go before whom? He'll go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And we have to, we have to stop here for a moment because in chapter 3 of Luke, John the Baptist is going to come on the scene. He's going to be preaching up a storm. And he's going to be calling people to repentance. And people come start talking to him about their election and how they belong to Abraham. And he'll say, election? <laughs> Repent, right? He's going to be preaching up a storm. He's going to be calling down fire and brimstone, as it were. And you know what Luke is going to tie this to? He's going to tie it to Isaiah. And he's going to say, John is this person. He is the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of who? The Lord, who is Yahweh, who is God. See, one of the things that, we have to see in the Old Testament that so many miss, especially the, 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 the local cults like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. They don't recognize that in the Old Testament you have two outstanding, remarkable themes happening. One is the expectation that a man is going to come and deliver Israel. The other promise alongside of that, a parallel promise, is that God is going to come down and deliver Israel. God is going to rend the heavens and come down. 
the one who's going to come down, the son, is going to be called Mighty God. And you have these twin themes now fulfilled in this one God-man, Jesus Christ. So that you can say that his forerunner is now going before whom? The Lord. He is the forerunner to the Lord. This is not merely a title of excellence or that he's a, a, a type of master. This is a title of deity. John is going before the Lord to prepare his way. And if you had eyes to see, you could see it. These two things coming together now in the person of Jesus, being John being the forerunner. A remarkable, remarkable situation here. You see how just in these few words, Zechariah is pulling all this stuff together. Well, he has help from the Lord, obviously. But just a remarkable passage of all these Old Testament themes happening. Well, let's look now at verses 77 through 80, the nature of Israel's salvation. And this is where we're going to camp out for just a few minutes because this is, this is key. What is this forerunner going to do? Well, he's going to go before the Lord. He's going to give the knowledge of salvation to his people. The knowledge of salvation. Now, just hold on. Okay. What is the theme of this passage? It's very clearly salvation. It's deliverance. He's mentioned salvation multiple times. He's now saying that this is the role of the forerunner to give knowledge of salvation to the people. The, the, the theme of this passage is clearly salvation. And there is an emphasis here. Not, it's, it's not exclusive, but there is an emphasis here on what we would call a political deliverance, a military deliverance, a physical deliverance, being saved from one's enemies. But he's alluding to more than that, as we've already seen. And not only is he alluding to more than that, he is now, with, with just the next sentence, he's going to bring together two major themes in the Old Testament. We saw one, God coming down and the son of David coming down, man coming down to deliver Israel. Now, another set of themes. What is it? That God is going to deliver his people from their enemies, and he's going to do it by forgiving their sins. To give the knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of sins. See, here's the, here's the problem in Israel at the time. You had religious leaders who had memorized massive portions of the scriptures. But they'd really only absorbed a few sections of it, really. Because they were ready to embrace a military leader who was going to come and say, hey, I'm, I'm ready to take down Rome. They're expecting a military deliverer, a political deliverer. That's what they desired. That's what they wanted. And it wasn't entirely wrong because God has promised that very thing in the Old Testament. The problem was that they didn't have a category for a spiritual savior who would be coming in the form of a suffering servant. They didn't have a category for the reality that they first needed the forgiveness of sins. Why both these promises of physical deliverance and forgiveness of sins? Why is Zechariah bringing these both together? Because Israel's greatest enemy was not Rome. It wasn't Egypt, it wasn't Assyria, it wasn't Babylon. Israel's greatest enemy was sin. Zechariah foresees his son's ministry as a ministry that delivers the message from salvation, not from Rome, but from sin. See, 
if you get salvation from sin, you can get salvation from Rome. But salvation from Rome won't necessarily lead you to salvation from sin. This is not to suggest that deliverance from Israel's physical enemies wouldn't happen. It definitely would. All people, including ethnic Jews, who place their faith in this Messiah, of, of whom John is the forerunner, will be forgiven of their sins, but not only that, will then be someday brought into a kingdom in which righteousness will dwell and then brought into an, e- an eternal existence, a new heavens and a new earth where you, where you will be not only delivered from your sin for eternity, but delivered from all possible enemies. It will happen. And remarkably, wonderfully, Romans 11 tells us that in the future, God is going to do a massive salvation of ethnic Jews so that a massive collection of them come and trust in the Messiah and come and inherit what God had brought for them to, made for them to inherit. But in order for any physical deliverance of your enemies to occur, you must be delivered by that first and most important enemy, which is sin. In order to enjoy an eternity of serving God without fear and holiness and righteousness, you must be forgiven of your sin. And what was true for Israel is true for every one of us here today. Mankind's greatest enemies are not ISIS or wildfires or a public utilities company or a sluggish economy, or a downtrending stock market, or a week's jobs report, or a trade war, or an unstable presidency, or a society bent on turning from the very basics of uh, biological reality, or a local government ready to capitulate to every immoral whim of a decadent culture. Those are not our final and most important and ultimate enemies, important as they may be. The most important, greatest most significant, ultimate enemy that we could have is the wrath of God upon us because of unforgiven sin. Before there can be a deliverance into an eternity of social, political, and economic rest, something that Scripture does promise for the not-so-distant future for His people, by the way. Let's not scrub the Bible of real, material, physical promises of a new heavens and a new earth. However, there must be first the forgiveness of sins. That's why Zechariah uh, sees his son's ministry as one that will speak of salvation in these very terms. To truly be saved, you know, in our young adult uh, group, the young, we have a young professionals group on Friday night. And we've been talking about various aspects of theology. We just recently got done with talking about salvation. And we decided collectively, I think we did, Correct me if I'm wrong, but we decided kind of collectively that when we talk about being saved, that we should not just use the shorthand anymore. Being saved is, people just hear that and it just kind of goes in one ear and out the other. They they just think it's so much religion is what it is. You're getting excited about some sign of religion. What does it mean to be saved? It means to be saved from the wrath of God. So the next time someone says to you, or you start talking to someone about being saved, you can say, I'm saved from the wrath of God. Do you, you want to be saved? You can be saved from the wrath of God. That's what it means to be saved. So to be truly saved, so did we, did we conclude that in our young professionals? I'm getting some nods. Oh, good. Okay. It's a collective, collective agreement. 
To be truly saved is to be saved from the wrath of God, and this will only be uh, happen through the forgiveness of sins. And this provision of forgiveness was provided in the Messiah that Zechariah has already talked about. The reason for the incarnation is so that this God-man would come down and deliver his people from their sins, that he would bear the punishment in our place on the cross. That's what happened there. On the cross, he bears his people's punishment in their place so that then God can, in perfect justice, say, your sins are forgiven because Christ has borne them. Everyone who comes to Jesus in repentant faith will be forgiven of their sins, not because you have deserved or merited or done anything, but because Christ has done all for you. And because of that forgiveness of sins, you can expect and anticipate final deliverance from your enemies to worship God in peace and joy forever. But notice this. In the work of Christ, you have a few things happening. You have, you see that God has planned for his people both a spiritual salvation and a physical salvation. If you study the Old Testament and kind of contrast the, the, the word salvation or deliverance, if you kind of contrast the word group back and forth between the Old Testament, you'll kind of pick up on, it seems that Old Testament is talking about physical salvation. So when David's talking about save me, he means save me from the hand of Saul so that I don't die tomorrow. And that's a, a lot of the time how the Old Testament talks. It's about this physical salvation. Then you come to the New Testament, you think, and there's this talk of salvation, and it is primarily with reference to salvation, if not exclusively, primary, uh, exclusively with reference to salvation from the wrath of God. The truth is, is that in Christ, God has come to give his people a full salvation of both soul and body. And you see this even in the work of Christ itself. So that in Christ, you have on the cross the means of forgiveness of sins by him bearing all of our wrath in our place. But then you have a Savior who then raises from the dead physically, bodily, so that, that all who are united to him will then be raised like him in the future to inherit a new heavens and a new earth in a physical body. It's not merely a spiritual salvation where we're just going to kind of float around as disembodied souls out there somewhere for all eternity. That's not the salvation that the Scripture anticipates or promises. It's a full, complete, robust, holistic salvation, body and soul. Zechariah bringing all of these, both of these things together. And all of this is so for the goal that someday we will be brought into the Lord's presence with entirely new constitutions, new bodies. Sin is eradicated once and for all, praise God. Be saved to sin no more, I think we just sang earlier. We long for that. And we will be outfitted, if I can use that language, for an experience of holiness and worship we can only begin to imagine right now. The problem is, is that there may be some here today that have a vision of a Savior that's a lot like Israel's at the time that Jesus came. And when I say Israel, I mean, broadly speaking, the, the religious leaders who had, who, had, who had access to the Old Testament, who are only absorbing parts of it. You might be seeing Jesus as a Savior from all your earthly troubles. And if you see in Jesus anything less than a Savior from all your earthly troubles now in this life, you're not willing to have him. 
you would rather have just a little religion now and live your best life now than you would rather to have your sins forgiven, suffer for Christ a little bit now, and then enjoy an eternity of final and full deliverance from all of your physical enemies. The sad thing about your situation is that you are literally exchanging an eternity of joy and peace and true and genuine and full salvation for just a few moments of ease in this life. See, in Christ we do have final deliverance from all of our physical enemies, but it's a deliverance only that comes through the forgiveness of sins. Everything else that salvation means is irrelevant if you don't first grasp this reality. Salvation means to be saved from the wrath of God through the forgiveness of sins. And the heart of the godly desires this final deliverance. I mean, things like being saved from our earthly enemies and all the earthly troubles and pains and suffering and sorrows of this life, wonderful, glorious things that we will thank God for for all eternity. There's no doubt. But the deepest reason we look for this final deliverance to get our enemies away from us is so that we can worship God for all eternity without fear, without anxiety. Can you imagine an eternity without anxiety? Relief for all eternity? I mean, what is that going to be like? And the reason we desire that is so that we can worship the living God and know the living Christ in the most intimate possible way and give him all the praise that he is due. <clears throat> all right, let's, as we close, let's notice the, the motives uh, for God's deliverance here. Verse 78. Verse 77, it says, To give the knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. So that word tender that's, that's translated tender in the ESV, it literally refers to the, the inner bowels of somebody. So that it came to mean when you have compassion for them, it's just a, it's a powerful inward feeling. It's the whole person just longing to, to have compassion and love for another person. That's the motive that God has here in the deliverance of his, his people. He loves his people. And he has compassion on their situation. He says, whereby the sunrise will visit us and give light from those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. When you are walking in spiritual apathy and spiritual darkness and sin and you have given yourself to a life of immorality, it's not pleasant and it's not full of joy. It is actually, at the end of the day, darkness and the shadow of death. Jesus comes and he comes to rescue you from your sin so that you can say of that deliverance, it is like light shining into your darkness. It is like life coming to give life to the dead. And this is all due to God's great compassion that he has for his people. He looks upon his people. He sees that they are wandering, that they are lost, and he sends his son out to rescue them. So this is what Christ offers you today, to give you light to those who sin in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our way, our feet into the way of peace. How? Again, 
through the forgiveness of sins. It will lead to an, an experience of peace in this life to then be fulfilled finally and completely in eternity. And if you have not come to Christ for the right reasons, if you have not come to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, today I would call you and let today be the day of your salvation. You can be forgiven today. Today you can have all of your sins washed away. And don't begin to say to yourself, well, I'm too wicked. That only is self-righteousness, quite frankly. You might be thinking it sounds pretty humble. No, you're looking in the face of God's sufficient gift to provide you for the full forgiveness of your sins and saying, oh, no, 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 it's not sufficient for me. Well, that's quite arrogant. Christ has borne all of our sins so that if you believe in him and turn from your sin and put your faith in him alone, not trusting in your works, not trusting in your church attendance, not trusting in how much you just gave this morning, he will forgive you for Christ's sake, bring you into his family, change your heart, grant you the Holy Spirit, plant you in a church, in a, a body of brothers and sisters who will love and care for you and call you his very own when you come to Christ. And those of us who, who know and possess this forgiveness of sins, let's set our hope on the day when we will finally be delivered from all of our troubles to worship God without fear, in peace, for all eternity. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a remarkable passage. We are moved by all the various themes that are coming from the Old Testament into the fulfillment in Christ. God, I pray that we would treasure the forgiveness of sins in Christ. God, I pray that you would teach us to share a gospel that emphasizes and prioritizes the forgiveness of sins. Not taking away from the promises that you promised, but promises that you have promised in the future. You have not promised us health, wealth, and prosperity now. You've promised us the forgiveness of sins and the nearness of our Savior. That's what you've promised us. You've promised to provide for our needs. But God, you have said that these promises of a future inheritance, of peace from our enemies, they come in a kingdom, in a new heavens, and a new earth where righteousness dwells. God, help us to set our heart on those things and those of us who have not come to Christ for the forgiveness of sins, I pray that that would happen even today, even now, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.